If you bite and devour, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. We are in the last days. The last days are the time between Jesus' first and second coming. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 that during these times as we await our Savior's return, men will be lovers of self and money, boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. We live in ugly times where people are vicious towards each other. And as a church, we need to guard ourselves from the wolves that come in from outside and try to destroy us. Satan and his forces are seeking to devour, seeking to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, to get us to give up and to turn away from him. But we must stand firm against his schemes. And while the danger out there is very serious, we need to stand, and we need to stand firm in our faith, there is also a danger in here. If you bite and devour, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. In Numbers 11, Israel complained about their leaders. How could you possibly bring us out in the desert to die? We were better off in Egypt. We don't like the food. We don't like our leaders. We want to go back. And then in Numbers 12, Moses' older brother and sister complained about him. Why is Moses getting all the credit? God can speak through us as well. And then in chapter 14, the people are sick of the food and the poor leadership, and they're ready for a new leader. They say, let us appoint our own leader and go back to Egypt. They would rather experience slavery, they'd rather be in bondage than underneath the authority of Moses and ultimately of God. Two chapters later, Korah and his pals develop a coup against Moses and his leadership. They assign evil motives to Moses and suggest that they would serve the people better. They would be better leaders, better mediators between God and Israel, and God calls them out by swallowing them up and vindicating his servant Moses. In all their complaining, the people complain against God. They don't trust him. They don't love him. In their disdain for others, they show their disdain for God and for his leadership. If you bite and devour, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Proverbs 12, 18 says that, that the tongue can be used to stab like a sword. We can use our tongues to actually destroy people's character. Psalm 52 says, Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. Words of a gossip can produce strife. Evil words can be used as a false witness in a courtroom to bring a conviction on a perfectly innocent person. Proverbs 30, 14 says, uh, talks of a wicked person as a person who has a sword for a tongue and knives for fangs. Our words are very powerful. And if you bite and devour, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. When a couple comes to their wedding day, 
They can't imagine being out of love with each other. They only expect things to get better. Isn't that true? Anticipating even better days. And yet, domestic violence is so common in our country that nearly one out of every three people will experience it at some point in their lifetime. Even though the anticipation is high, at some point, words begin to devour and they turn into more than words. According to a 2019 poll in Forbes magazine, nearly 80% of families describe their homes as dysfunctional. 80%. And 40% have experienced estrangement from one or more family members at some point in their lives. They've just been cut off from them. We don't know how to deal with problems, and so we attack or we we retreat. We don't address the issues that actually got us into this mess in the first place. We keep piling dirty laundry on top of dirty laundry rather than getting to the bottom of it. And if you bite and devour, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And sadly, we can act that way, not just outside of church, but even within the congregation of believers as well. Church members fight with each other verbally, sometimes physically. They take advantage of each other. They slander. And when there is this conflict, instead of dealing with it, they park themselves on the other side of the church so they don't have to run into that person. They don't have to deal with that person anymore. Business meetings can become an open forum for airing grievances. Business meetings can serve as the undercard for a battle royal among members. You, personally, and I have the power to set a fire of conflict from our words. If you bite and devour, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Pastor Tracy asked me to talk about the things that might tear us apart as a congregation. Mark Dever is a pastor in, in um, Washington, D.C., and some of the guys in his staff say he can hit hard because he hugs first. And the reason I can hit you hard tonight is because Tracy hugged you first last night, okay? He came in with an encouraging message from Philippians 2, reminding us of the blessings that we have in being part of the family of God and also the responsibilities that we have as being part of God's family. And so I'm not going to sucker punch you. I'm I'm telling you, I'm going to punch you tonight. Okay? So brace yourself. The sad reality is that some of the great dangers that we have to guard ourselves against, some of the greatest dangers are not outside of this building. There are dangers outside, but we have great dangers inside this room. Now, before you start looking around, recognize that you also are in this room, and some people will be looking at you as well. We also are capable of producing strife, and we need to guard our lips. We need to guard our tongues. And this passage in Galatians chapter 5 will orient us and motivate us to love and to serve, which is the opposite of biting and devouring. So please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. 
In Galatians, Paul has been showing that a right standing before God comes by faith in Jesus. And it's apart from works. He wants to make that very clear. It is in Jesus and it's apart from works. A person cannot be justified by the works of the law. That's what he's been saying in this letter. That is, a person cannot be saved by his own performance. He is only saved by grace alone through faith in Christ apart from his works. A person who is depending on his own performance to affect this right standing before God has actually been severed from Christ. That's going to be in the text right before the one we're going to look at. He's saying you've been cut off from Christ if you're trusting in your own performance. And therefore, the law of Moses has no hold on you as a Christian. And while that's true, we must also avoid the other extreme to think that, well, because the law of Moses doesn't have a hold on me, then I can just live however I want. And I can use my tongue however I want. And I can mistreat people however I want. Paul is going to address that overreaction to move away from the law of Moses to kind of an antinomianism where we just do whatever we please. Because freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. And so he's going to show that both of these are really enslavements. When we put ourselves under this works-based system, that's an enslavement. And then there's another kind of enslavement um, that we have to avoid. But there's a third kind of enslavement that we're going to talk about as well, and that's an enslavement to serve others and love. Look at verse 13, and we'll read through verse 15. For you were called to freedom, brethren, this is Galatians 5, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Christian freedom is given to us so that we can serve Christ by serving others. If you are in Christ, you are free. We, we heard some of this last night. The great privilege that we have as being part of God's family. We are free. Paul says as much in verse 13. We are free from the law of Moses, free from offering sacrifices, free from having to observe days. You have Christian freedom if you are in Christ. But there's a wrong way to use Christian freedom and a right way to use Christian freedom. He's going to talk about both of those in this passage. First, the wrong way to use Christian freedom. The wrong way to use Christian freedom is to abuse it by spending it on yourself. You were called to freedom. That's the statement that's made at the beginning of the the verse. We didn't call ourselves to freedom. God called us to freedom. We didn't earn this position. God put us in this position. Look, at, look back at chapter 4 and verse 9. I love how it's described here. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, isn't that a great way to think about your relationship with God? We think of it as we came to know God, but more technically, God came to know us. That's a great privilege that we have. Or as Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you in John 15, 16. You see, our calling and the Galatians' calling was not by human scheming. Rather, it was like Sarah's pregnancy through God's miraculous power. According to his promise, he brought about this great freedom that we now enjoy. And therefore, the point of this is that we must use this freedom as God desires, not as we desire. 
If we use our freedom as we please, we pervert it, we abuse it. And so we have to avoid these kinds of ditches on either side, which are the, the ditch of, of kind of depending on the law as a means to be accepted before God. It, it turns into a kind of slavery, doesn't it? We become enslaved to this works-based system. And then the other extreme is this antinomianism, which is a disregard for restraint. And sadly, as we get older, this tends to happen a little bit more. We, we feel like we have to speak our minds. I mean, we've been holding it in for a long time, and we don't have much time left on the earth, so people have to hear what we think. I have to get it off my chest, that's usually how we say it. No, you don't. Last time I checked, loose lips was not one of the fruit of the Spirit, but self-control is. You don't have to speak your mind, always. Now, you should speak truthfully, but you don't need to speak in a way that, that does not edify, that does not build others up. Ephesians four twenty nine. let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up so that it may benefit them. And so if you're not using your words for that purpose, you can keep your mouth shut. This is a little low blow for you. Coming with a jab in the cross here pretty soon. We can abuse our Christian freedom by spending it on ourselves. This is what the second part of verse 13 is talking about. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. This is part of the main point of the passage. There are two primary commands in this passage, and they're both here in verse 13. The first one is this one I just read. It's a prohibition. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And the second is at the end of verse 13, which is through love, serve one another. There's, a, there's actually a third command, and it's in verse 14. It's, it's quoting from the Old Testament law. We'll get to that in just a second. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Now, what is this flesh? In the New Testament, the word flesh can refer to the physical body, like it does in chapter 4, verse 13. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. But you know that it was because of a bodily or fleshly illness, it's the same root word there, that I preached the gospel to you the first time. So it can refer to a bodily condition. But that's not what Paul is talking about here in 5.13. He's using it as a word, uh, as he's used it elsewhere in the New Testament, to refer to sinful desires. For example, in chapter 4, verse 23, Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Meaning, he was born according to the sinful scheming of Abraham and Sarah, who tried to get a son by taking matters into their own hands and offering up Hagar to produce a son. So what's Paul saying here in verse 13 then in chapter 5? He's saying that one potential problem with our Christian freedom is that we can turn it into a license to indulge in our sinful desires. We're like, thank you, God, for making me free. Thank you for freeing me from this law that was so oppressive, and it was. Now, I can just do whatever I want. I'm going to turn this into a license to act as I please. And hey, it's all under grace. God has to forgive. Of course he does. He's a forgiving God. And Paul says, don't do that. It should remind us of Romans 5. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, we want more grace. 
So let's send it up. Paul says, no, may it never be. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In an attempt to avoid this oppressive law-based, works-based system, we swing too far the other way and we end up displeasing our Father. We spend it on ourselves. Verse 15 describes how we might spend it on ourselves. We spend it on ourselves by destroying other people in this context. Notice verse 15 again. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you don't consume one another. The way that we abuse Christian freedom is by spending on ourselves by destroying other people. And here Paul's giving a warning for those of us who may abuse our Christian freedom. This is what it might look like in our day-to-day life. Notice this word here, devour. This the word devour is the same word used in Revelation 12, verse 4, to describe Satan standing before Israel as, it's about, as she is about to give birth to the Messiah, and he's desiring to devour him. He wants to destroy him. It's a word used of savage animals who tear each other apart without thought of consequence. This is the opposite of what Paul is going to call us to do in verse 14. In an effort to, to attain status before God through the works of our flesh, we end up devouring each other. We've been so convinced that we're not under the law, and we become loose the way that we treat other people. We end up devouring them like savage animals might do. So Paul says, here's a guaranteed way to become ineffective as a church. Use your freedom as a license for selfish gratifications. Live however you want. And when you do, you will consume one another. You will tear each other apart and the reputation of Christ in the process. So that's the wrong way to use our Christian freedom. The right way is described at the end of verse 13 and end of verse 14. Notice this command. This is the second main command of the text. It is, but through love, serve one another. This is the end of verse 13. The first one was, don't turn your freedom into a license for the flesh, into into an opportunity for the flesh. Here's the second one. Through love, serve one another. This is God's will for you. That you would use your energies, your time, for the sake of serving other people. To misuse God's freedom that he's granted to you, you spend it on yourself. And you don't care about the people around you. You, you. you see the world as if everything revolves around you. And collateral damage is going to happen because you have to have it your way. That's the wrong way to use it. But the right way is to spend yourself by serving God which is done through serving others. Now, this is a bizarre statement if you think about it, particularly if you consider the Greek word that is used here. The word serve at the end of verse 13 could be translated enslaved. In fact, look up to chapter 4 and verse 9, and you'll see this word used 
there, at the end of the verse, it says, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be served all over again or enslaved all over again? So this word in verse 13 of chapter 5, Paul could be saying here, because you are called to freedom, enslave yourselves to other people. Enslave yourself. And that doesn't make any sense, Paul. You're telling me I was once enslaved and Christ unenslaved me. He set me free. And now I'm re-enslaving myself? Why would I do that? I think one of the, the problems is, is that we think that we either have enslavement or freedom. But instead, we need to recognize it's more like a spectrum. There are different levels of enslavement. In other words, we should understand freedom in terms of how good the enslavement is. Similar to a yoke that Jesus describes in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's Jesus promising rest by putting a yoke on your neck. You're like, wait a second. What in the world is, 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 an, easy, is an easy yoke? I mean, you're going to put me into a form of, of restriction? If you really loved me, wouldn't you just set me free and let me do whatever I wanted? And Jesus is saying, this is the best kind of rest that you can have. is to be yoked to me. The other kind of yoke that you would have experienced is terrible, and terrifying, and, and, and it's, it's burdensome. But his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. In a similar way, we are not unenslaved completely. Our freedom means that we have a different kind of enslavement. Consider this uh, kind of uh, connection here in Romans 6. Romans 6, 17 and 18. You were once slaves of sin, and having been set free, there's the same sort of idea, free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. We become unenslaved, we're set free in order to become slaves of righteousness. So for us to be put into a position where we're taken out of the enslavement of the works-based system and put into enslavement to love and serve one another, that's actually a much better situation than we were in before. Martin Luther puts these truths side by side. He says, A Christian is free and independent in every respect, a bondservant to none. So there's the one side. He's free and independent in every respect, a bondservant to none. And then the other side is this. A Christian is dutiful and bound in every respect, owing a duty to everyone. We have that kind of tension, don't we, that we're both free and bound at the same time. And so here's the point. There's no such thing as unqualified freedom for us. There are only levels of freedom. When you come to Christ, you have been freed from a life of slavery to sin, where sin was your master and Satan was your father. But that doesn't give you self-autonomy where you make the rules. You still are a slave to your master, a slave to righteousness. And here, 
is what it looks like in Galatians 5. You are responsible to enslave yourself to other people, whom God has called according to his purpose, whom God has placed in the body with you. So here's what Paul wants from the Galatians. All the energy that you're using to serve yourselves, you know, the wrong, the misuse of freedom, take that energy and use it to serve others. Serve others in love. And the reason for the command is found in verse 14. He just finished saying that we're called to freedom from the law of Moses, and then he quotes the law. And this is a little, little irony here in my mind. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm like, wait a second. I thought we were not under the law. Why are you bringing the law back up again and telling us that this is something for us? I think the reason he does that is, yes, they're not bound to the Old Testament law. But he's saying, listen, the, even the Old Testament law pointed to something. It pointed to love. It's fulfilled in one word. It's fulfilled in your enslaving service to other people by loving them with a genuine heart. When you do that, you accomplish exactly what God intended for the Old Testament law as well. Show them that what was at the heart of the Old Testament law, which was love. It's interesting that he uses this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, because we would expect if we're going to fulfill the whole law in one word, we would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why would he say, love your neighbor? I think he's essentially saying this is what love for God looks like. This is how it practically works out. If you take the first four commandments, which, which describe our love for God, and the last six commandments, which, which describe our love for self, they're all love for God. But the last six are an expression of what that love for God looks like. This is how it plays out in life. So how do we do this? How do we enslave ourselves to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? What does this look like? The way we do this is by following this command here in verse 14. Love other people the way you love yourself. So how do you love yourself? This is a simple question we can ask when we come into a relationship with another person. How do I love myself? What would I want them to do for me? Then I need to do that for them. Show love the way that you would want to be loved. When you come into an awkward or embarrassing or painful setting, what are you normally thinking about? Like you're hoping people respond in a certain way or say a certain thing or do something or give encouragement or whatever the case is, well, you can be that person. When you sense that that person's in that kind of situation, the other person's in that kind of situation, they're in an awkward or embarrassing or painful setting. Think about what the people you come into contact, what this might look like. What can I do to serve them today? What if we came into each gathering time thinking of the question, what can I do to build someone up today? What can I do to to use my words or the words of God to edify them, to build them up? Something that would be helpful for the need of the moment. There's a statement that says, an old saying that says, familiarity breeds contempt. 
from a human, purely human perspective, the church is the perfect soil for contempt and conflict. Because we're always around each other. When we're engaged in the body of Christ, we spend a lot of time together and we start to get more and more familiar with each other. And if that statement's true, then it's going to breed contempt. At some point, we're going to lose respect for people. We're going to start getting comfortable around them. We're going to put down our guard. We're going to go back to what we used to do before we came to Christ. We, we start serving ourselves. We make church all about me and about my needs being met. And we may even presume upon the kindness and the forgiveness of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've seen them do it so many times to us that, you know, how I live doesn't really matter because they're going to forgive me. They're still going to love me. They're family. And in that way, we are doing the opposite of what Paul is calling us to do. We're using our freedom to serve ourselves as an opportunity for the flesh. In time, we become complacent. And our hearts start to overflow into our words because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and the relationships that started with us restraining ourselves and with us showing compassion and care are are slowly starting to recede those kinds of ideas. And we're, we're starting to move towards bitterness because we've been hurt or wrath or anger or clamor, slander, or malice. If you bite and devour, be careful that you don't consume one another. If that's where we're at, we need to repent. And we need to remind ourselves of the spiritual responsibilities that we have to put off that old way of life and put on this love that's marked by service. If Satan wanted to destroy our church, what would be the most effective way for him to do that? Would it be through some kind of overt opposition? Maybe a Catholic priest or a Muslim imam coming in, making an appeal to us to convert to Catholicism or Islam? Is that the way he's going to, to get us to fall, to get us to turn away from the faith? Possibly, but not likely. That's an overt attack. We would see right through that. Would he try to get us to fall by maybe having an immoral person stand outside of our church and make appeals for us to to give up the faith and come enjoy a lifestyle with them? No, we would run from that. We would be like Joseph and say, we see right through that. That is against God. That is not his will. That is opposed to God. That is defiant. We'll not do that. How might Satan get us to fall? Would it be for the government to come up with a law that says we can't worship anymore? By God's grace, I think our church would have the resolve to worship anyway and embrace the suffering that would come. How would he get us to fall? Is it possible that some of us might become complacent spiritually? Just get more comfortable with listening to gossip and spreading it ourselves. 
Could we plant our flag in the ground saying, I will not be disrespected by anyone. And so if people are going to treat me that way, they're going to feel my wrath, or at least I'm going to recede. I'm going to pull away. Could we start to make it a priority to be heard regarding our pet idea that we think will make the church better? Do you see what's going on here? We actually can feel spiritual on on holding on to this idea that we think is going to make the church better. And then start to kind of dissect the congregation into groups of who follows me, who's on my side, and who's on the other side. And I can feel spiritual all the while doing it. Could we start to have such a high view of ourselves that we stop listening to people and only want to speak our minds? We, we, we kind of just like listen past them so that we can get to the point where we make our statement. Could we, contra Philippians 2, think of ourselves more highly than others? Like, I'm kind of important here. And so my way does matter, and yours doesn't. Could we develop a disdain for washing the feet of people who are lower than us? Why would we ever serve that person? They don't deserve my service. They don't deserve grace. Could we develop friendships only with people who won't criticize us or call out our sin? We kind of develop a, a little group of people who will just ignore the things that should be confronted. Could we use our past hurt as an excuse not to ever get close to anyone else ever again. I've already seen this reel. And for me, to get close to that person again is likely to put me in a position of vulnerability and to experience the kind of hurt that I've already felt before, so it would not be right for me to do that. So I'm just going to kind of kind of stay back here, spectator kind of approach to church life. Could Satan attack us by us stopping, stop using our gifts to serve the body and instead to use them as a means for boasting? Look at the gifts that I have. Only people like me have these kinds of gifts, and you're not like me. Similar to 1 Corinthians. Could we turn toward a quiet hatred of other believers? Maybe it's not expressed fully in like how we talk, and, and, and people may not know it. They just think we're the the best kind of Christian, and, and in, the, in, in the background, we are stewing. And we hold on to that past hurt that we've experienced like a morsel under our tongue. And every once in a while, we just want to taste the bitterness of it, and we bring it back up in our mouth and suck on it a little bit and then tuck it back away for when we need it again. Could we start turning towards bickering and bitterness? Could we take a posture of self-righteousness, constantly nitpicking and looking down on everyone else for all the faults that they're doing while we got a huge beam knocking stuff over as we're walking around? Could we overlook sins that should be confronted? And could we start confronting sins that should be overlooked? That, that love covers, it should cover a multitude of sins, and we're just pointing them all out because of our own self-righteousness. 
Could we take pleasure in actually starting conflicts? Because there's something to it. Could we be spiteful, unfaithful, harsh, short-suffering, lacking self-control, impatient, and unkind? If you bite and devour, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. What if Ichabod were written on the doors of our church? The glory of the Lord has departed. And what if it were written on our church not because of some catastrophic, egregious, reprehensible, front page of the newspaper kind of sin? What if our church, through the influence of Satan and this evil world system in our flesh, died the death of a thousand cuts? I'm not making a prediction about our church, and I'm not making a passive-aggressive jab at someone who I know is doing this, and I just really hope that they're listening right now. I'm warning us, like Paul is, of the potential dangers if we allow ourselves to think that we're standing firm and that we are impervious to the kinds of things that get churches to fall and have gotten churches to fall over the centuries. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are free. Free now to enslave ourselves to each other in love. And our captain has designed a ship to withstand the blows of the enemy. A few weeks ago, Jennifer and I were in San Diego. One of the things that we did while we were there was we visited the USS Midway aircraft carrier. How many of you have been there? Okay, several of you. We'll have an invitation later for those of you who didn't. The U.S. Navy ship was the largest boat in the world at the time that it was built, and it was in operation for over five decades. Its most notable action happened during the Vietnam War and Operation Desert Storm. The ship was a floating city. 4,500 people would be on the ship at a time. One of the reasons for its commissioning was that previous ships could only withstand a single torpedo blow, and then they'd be sunk. Water would fill the entire cavity of these previous ships, and it would only be a matter of time before the carrier was on the bottom of the ocean. But this new ship, this Midway, named after the Battle of Midway in World War II, not commissioned until 1952, was designed to remain afloat after a torpedo blow. The underside of the ship was full of these individual compartments. I'm saying they're like this. They're probably like, you know, the size of this room or something. I don't know. Full of individual compartments so that when one of those compartments was breached, that compartment alone would fill up with water. And if they needed to, they would fill up the other side of the ship to counterbalance it. And the ship would survive. It'd be fine. Can I say to you that the captain of our ship and the Savior of our souls is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has designed a ship, his church, to withstand the most powerful onslaught from the, from, from the, gates, from the gates and the forces of hell. We are promised that hell will not prevail against Christ's church. However, Our lampstand could be snuffed out like it was in Revelation 2 and 3. 
at least warned as so. And if it is, it will be no fault of our captain. It will be because we have dropped our guard and possibly turned towards infighting. And if you haven't seen this happen in real life in churches, then you've probably been a part of this church your whole life, or you've probably been just part of good churches all the time. But this does happen. And what I want you to be encouraged about this evening is that there is great freedom in serving others. There is great freedom in serving others. As an unbeliever, your life is all about you. Every attempt at goodness is you thinking about yourself. But as a free person in Christ, you're now freed from that. You no longer have to live for yourself, but to live for him who died for you. And one of the great ways that you do that is by enslaving yourself to other people whom God has put in your circle of influence. God has put it in this local church. You, you may think, well, that sounds more like slavery. And it is a kind of slavery, but it's an easier, easier slavery than you would have had apart from Christ, isn't it? Consider the kind of love that Christ has shown you and is showing to you every day and allow that to serve as motivation. He looks out for your needs, doesn't he? He seeks to meet those needs even when his meeting of your needs goes unrecognized, unpaid, and unreciprocated. What does Jesus do? He keeps moving towards you, doesn't he? That's the nature of his love. So can you not do that to other people who may not appreciate it, who may not pay you back in any way? Can you not love in that way? Because you've loved and are being loved in that way by Christ. Our Savior is our example. As we learned last night and were reminded of last night. So let me just ask you two questions as we finish up, just to make it practical. First, are there any sins that you need to repent of that you have made with your mouth in biting and devouring someone else who's not only made in the image of God, but bought with his blood and added to this church body? Someone in this church, is there some sin or sins that you need to repent of? And then secondly, this is the positive side of it. What are one or two ways that you can spend yourself in service for someone in the church this week? What can you do to serve someone else in the body? You, you probably have some, something in mind or someone, the, these kind of thoughts often come up throughout the day or when we hear about different things or maybe we're thinking about someone who's going through something. What's one way that you can serve one of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Brothers and sisters, you were called to freedom. And so with that freedom, don't use it to spend it on yourself. Use it to enslave yourself to others. In love, serve one another. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the truth of your word and we are sobered to think that we are far from where we ought to be. We are constantly in need of your grace. We need to continue to grow. And we're also sobered by 
your constant and undying love for us. You, you continually move towards us, even as we sin, you pursue us. And we deserve your wrath, and apart from the work of Jesus Christ, we would, we would get it. We would earn it. But because of your grace, you have brought us near. And now we can say that there is no guilt in life and no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. So Lord, please help us to use our lives to serve one another, not as an opportunity for the flesh to bite and devour and help us not to minimize the, the subtle sins that seem so acceptable among our, uh, the people in our Christian subculture, what, what Jerry Bridges might call a, a respectable kind of sin. Help us not to see it in that way, but as something that cost our Savior his life. And, and for that, we need to turn from that and, and find your forgiveness. Lord, please forgive us where we have failed you with our lips and Bring us back to a place in which we hold tightly to the responsibilities that we have to love one another, to serve one another. We pray for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.